Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, you're very welcome to the Mick Clifford podcast in these extraordinary times. Now, today, as my guest, I have the Lord Mayor of Cork, Councillor John Sheehan. John is with us for a particular reason, and that is that we're commemorating 100 years since a very seminal event in the War of Independence, and that was the murder of the Lord Mayor of Cork, Tomás McCurtain, and everything that resulted from that including his succession by uh, his friend and colleague, Terence McSweeney, who I think it's fair to say whose name became far more synonymous with the times than Tomás McCurtain. But we'll get into that, among other things, with John Sheehan. John, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mick. John, on the basis of, of the extraordinary times we are living in, could I just ask you, first of all, just how Cork City is coping with the current emergency? But you're right. It's a very, very unusual time. And like all other areas throughout the country, um, you know, people are very, very uncertain. You're seeing things closing, schools, shops, some businesses. Um, so things are going on, but they're going on in a very different way. And we've all had to relearn how to do things in some terms of social distancing and things like that. And there is a slight feel of sort of um, it's almost as if a hurricane is about to come, that sort of uh, feeling around the place. But one of the things that impressed me most is the sort of the community spirit that really has come out, as you can see on, you know, social media and people sort of engaging and looking to help each other and looking out for each other, because there is a lot of worry and concern. But um, one of the things that has really, I suppose, struck me is that we will pass this. This will pass. In the next six weeks, it will be very different to what it was six weeks ago, uh, or six weeks, you know, from, from from this moment in time, and we will get through it, you know. And I think that's, um, I think it's sometimes important to remember that. I think so. I think we all need a bit of that at this time. Um, just an interesting aspect to what we're talking about, John, and that is, as I say, it's a hundred years ago, twentieth of March, Thomas McCurtain was murdered. Um, in a sense, this is the biggest emergency that there has been for the country uh, since the War of Independence, you could say. I mean, in a lot of parts of Europe, for example, World War II was a massive event, but we were somehow untouched by it here to a large extent, thankfully. And this now would seem to be something that has come full circle in terms of something that has really uh, come into every home in the country, effectively. It certainly has. And, you know, in a way, um, 1920 was just a seminal year um, in Irish politics um, in terms of the development of society. Um, the whole war of independence, the sort of the people asserting themselves for the first time, the first time women got the vote after a long, hard fought campaign, the first time proportional representation was put in. It was a really, really um, year that marked uh, our nation, I suppose, journey um, in, in its growth and development. And now we're faced with a, a different challenge, probably in a way, one that as a nation we can grasp with, uh, although it poses unique challenges that we can grasp with. But certainly 100 years ago, uh, there was equal amount of uncertainty about what's going to happen. 
Yes, no, as I mentioned, uh, both McCurtain and McSweeney, obviously successors of yours. As I said at the top of the programme, John, I think it's fair to say that in terms of perhaps legacy and certainly in terms of um, being remembered or whatever by, by people in general, being remembered by history perhaps, Terence McSweeney has to a large extent eclipsed Tomás McCurtain. W- would you agree with that? He probably has outside Cork, Mick. I think within Cork itself, both of them are very, very uh, much held in esteem. And every day I go into the Lord Mayor's Chambers, um, I th- there's a portrait of Tomás McCurtain and Terence McSweeney along with a bust of the two uh, Lord Mayors. Um, so you're very much reminded of their legacy. And, you know, I'm very honoured this year. I'm wearing the same chain that they wore 100 years ago. So it acts as a very, very powerful um, reminder. I think because Terence McSweeney's death um, was via hunger strike, which really was the first time that ever happened. It happened in London in Brixton Prison. It was a long, protracted period. It gathered international headlines. And if you look at you know, newspapers such as the New York Times um, as a period, you know, it was a prolonged period. So it probably gained international recognition more than Tomás McCurtain, who was a sudden brutal event when he was murdered. So um, I think Terence McSweeney's sacrifice um, in terms of fighting empire, um, I suppose, resonated right throughout the world with many, many people, particularly India and China, where um, many, many people spoke of him and he had a huge sort of influence uh, worldwide. Yeah, and I suppose I should clarify, and sometimes we make assumptions, but for those who perhaps wouldn't have been familiar with it, Terence McSweeney succeeded Tomás McCurtain after uh, McCurtain's death, and then later he was arrested, he was uh, brought to Brixton Prison, he went on hunger strike, and after, I think it was about 70 days, he died there on hunger strike, and uh, uh, as you say, John, that became a seminal event around the world. Back to Tomás McCurtain, could you give, give us a bit of his background? Yes, well, he he originally came from North Cork, uh, Moran Abbey area, and then went into the city for um, secondary school to the North Monastery, which is a I suppose it produced more Lord Mayors than any other city, uh, than any other school in the city. Tomás McCurtain and Terence McSweeney both um, attended there. And then, like a lot of people of that time, he was very much caught up in the, the Gaelic revival um, and the sort of the reawakening, I suppose, of all the cultural aspects of, of Ireland at the time. And that led him, I suppose, naturally into... Um, the Gaelic League, and he became a full-time worker with the Gaelic League, and then subsequently into the Irish Volunteers. Um, so, I, you know, we, we've done a lot of commemorations this year, but one of the things that really stands out is, as well as the political aspect of that time, there was a real cultural revival. Um, for instance, he, he opened up a business in Blackpool. He was very much involved with the Blackpool Orchestra, uh, with the Gaelic League, with poetry, with writing, as was uh, Terence McSweeney. So it was a really, really cultural aspect of things that that initially drove sort of that sort of determination for um, uh, self-determination in terms of a nationhood and nation state. Um, and you see that in many of the people who were involved of that time, they were there were poets, there were scholars, there were writers, there were artists, um, which sometimes gets forgotten about in the sort of the history that goes on um, um, afterwards. Um, he got involved and the um, first Republican council, which was elected in 1920, um, they formed an alliance with the trade union movement and achieved a majority on Cork City Council for the first time. And 
in January of that year, they they had the first uh, meeting of the Republican Council where they elected Dáil Éireann for the first time. And this was a really, really big move in the sense that they were the first Republican Council in the country to recognise Dáil Éireann and move away from London um, in terms of the legitimacy um, of Ireland. And uh, Tomás McCurtain was elected Lord Mayor to do that. One of the things that strikes me, though, when he was elected Lord Mayor, he did reach out across the divide and he made it clear that he was Lord Mayor for all the people, that he would you know, represent uni the unionist tradition, the business tradition, as well as the, the Republican um, tradition, and um, that he was a Lord Mayor for all the citizens. And this was acknowledged after his death by the Church of Ireland bishop, um, as well as the Catholic bishop, um, in terms of his fairness. Yeah, and I think it's also fair to say, that, as you said, he was active in the volunteers and in the IRA. And according to one account, anyway, he was involved in a botched attempt to assassinate Lord French, I think he was the Lord Lieutenant, on orders from Michael Collins. That's right. And, you know, the IRA was very active at the time and he was commander of the IRA in Cork. So they used to meet in a, um, a shop down by St. Augustine's Church uh, run by the Wallace sisters. And, you know, it was a very fervent time. You know, things were happening at night. There were meetings. There, were, there, there was planning. There was a lot of tension right throughout the city with the RAC and then subsequently the Black and Tans. Um, so there was a lot of things happening um, in the city at that time. Um, you know, and there was an awful lot of uncertainty. You know, there was there was the issue of the Republican courts being formed and not recognising um, the British courts. Um, you know, there was real uncertainty as to what would um, happen um, each day, you know. So um, he was very much at the centre of that um, um, in terms of... Um, you know, what was to, due to happen and things like that. And then we move forward just two months after he was elected Lord Mayor, the night of 19th of March into the 20th of March, 1920. He's at home. Uh, earlier that day, he'd been at City Hall doing his mayoral business, doing his mayoral duty. No, there, there was various reports. One report had it, I think it's it's been pretty much stood up, that there was a plan that night to, at the very least, arrest him. Yes, there, um, at this time, you know, there were some REC officers who were, who were being shot and there was a lot of tension and there was a feeling among the RIC that Tomás McCartan, as head of the RA, uh, commanded this. So there was, a, you know, there was a feeling that a message should be sent out in terms of, um, I suppose, bringing the R R IRA to, to heed. And by doing that, you could, um, you know, take out the top person in Cork who happened to be Tomás McCartan. And I have to say, by any standards, somebody who was an elected representative and the Lord Mayor of the city to be going and arresting him, it, it certainly was, um, that was pretty unique one way or the other, I would have thought. It was a very unique um, event to try and arrest the democratically elected Lord Mayor of a city, because this is someone who was received an overwhelming mandate from the people of Cork. And for the Crown forces to go and arrest someone who was, you know, elected, was the popular vote, popular representative of the people, you're basically sending the, the signal out that you've lost the moral authority uh, to govern in a country if you have to go around uh, arresting the democratically elected leaders of that country. Yes, and one report had it, and I think to be fair, it probably wasn't credible, that there was a shooting earlier that evening of an RIC constable, I think he was shot dead, and there was some suggestion initially 
that the 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 people who went to McCurtain's home in in um in Blackpool they were there as an act of revenge for that. But I think there was further evidence that suggested it was a bit more premeditated than that. That's right. Yes, yeah, there was a constable shot on Pope's Key by the river that night. Um, but it seems to be that this event um, was pre-planned in terms of, you know, a, a major force leaving the Curtain Street from the RIC barracks and then going to Blackpool uh, late at night. It seems to have been, um, you know, a very much planned event that we needed to send a signal out to, to arrest or, you know, murder the Lord Mayor of Cork and the commander of the IRA in Cork and, you know, send that signal out uh, to the people of Cork. And they arrived there, I think it was about 1am in the morning. Um, a number of them, reportedly some of them with blackened faces, highly unusual for a, a police force, one would have thought. They came into McCurtain's house, I think he was in bed, and his wife answered the door and they ran up the stairs and ran into the bedroom and I think one of his young, his youngest ch- child perhaps might have been with him, they, they, they shot him there in the bedroom. That's right. And like a lot of houses at that time, there was approximately over 12 people living in the house. There was extended family members, brothers, sisters, nephews and things like that. And that wouldn't that wouldn't have been uncommon of the period where you had extended family, um, you know, living um, with you. So they they committed this act about one o'clock in the morning. And the fact that their faces were blackened really sends a signal that they themselves knew what they were doing uh, wasn't following proper procedures, both morally and legally, um, that they had felt the need to disguise themselves. Um, It was a sudden, shocking, brutal um, um, event. And he didn't die straight away. He he, he took a few minutes to die. Um, The family were obviously distraught. Um, His wife was uh, completely distraught, who who was pregnant with twins at the time. Um, and it was the sort of the brutality of the event um, that really shocked people. And then the fact that also he was the Lord Mayor of the city, I think everyone felt a personal connection that if they're if they're murdered, the Lord Mayor, then who 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 is next? Yes. And then afterwards, obviously, a major funeral in Cork, um, a huge outpouring of sympathy. We might come on to what impact the murder had in terms of sentiment in a minute. But as far as the coroner's court was concerned. Again, the coroner's court, this was an instrument of state as it then was, and we were still officially in the British Empire. Yet the coroner's court returned a verdict of willful murder by David Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister. Yes, and this was quite a a radical move at the time. As you say, this was an organ of the state. And normally in situations like this, the state as an institution has a habit of uh, pulling up the walls and sort of stonewalling everything. So for the coroner to come out with this verdict uh, was quite a damning indictment of the um, brutality of the murder. Um, you know, so I think this caused quite a lot of shockwaves um, when it came out. And it also sent a signal that it was not a legitimate ac- uh, um, action. It was a murder. Is there anything to suggest, John, that the murder had an impact in sentiment towards the IRA in Cork? I mean, I think looking through some of the records, for example, in the in the Bureau of Military History, and uh, whereas this perhaps may not um, be to, to the taste of Cork people in general, but the notion of Cork as a rebel city 
was something of a modern phenomenon and that prior to the 20th century, some would maintain that it would have been very much uh, loyal to the crown in a lot of ways. Certainly people from other parts of Ireland, from what I've seen about uh, records that were there. But an event like this, and later in the year, of course, we had, as I say, McSweeney's death and then the burning of Cork. But this event specifically, is there anything to suggest that it brought people, particularly young and young men, out in anger and, and, and propelled a lot of them to join the IRA at the time? Um, there certainly is. And I think you're right. If you go back in history, um, I suppose Cork was very much you. Um, intertwined with some of the the infrastructure of the British Empire in the sense that, you know, we had a major military barracks here in the city. We had one in Balancolic and Formoy. We had a major uh, uh, port here with, um, you know, railway, naval base, all, all the sort of infrastructure of, of, of empire. And there were lots of people who, who would have lived and served and been part of that, um, I suppose, establishment. Um, after the, the, the murder of Tomás McCurtain, you do see a huge increase in um, Republican activity and IRA activity right throughout the city and particularly the county. Um, in a way, 1920 was Cork's 1916. The, um, there was very little action in 1916 here in Cork. Most of the action centred around Dublin and a few other isolated spots. But in 1920, really the centre of of activity, of uh, military activity and revolutionary activity was very much in Cork. And that that, that followed, um, it, it began before the death of uh, Tomás McCartan, but afterwards it really, really increased. And you see, if you drive around West Cork, uh, you, you just come across sites of ambushes um, um, all over the place, really, you know, Kilmichael and Crossbarry and um, loads of them. Yes, and, and then, as we say, we move on, and Terence McSweeney took over. Um, he imprisoned as well and went on hunger strike. And then later in the year, again, we had uh, the burning of Cork, which was again another reprisal for further Republican action. I think that time might have been just outside the city on that occasion. But it was really, I suppose, in the city's history, probably the most turbulent year, I don't know for how long. It really was, and and it's probably hard to imagine now the the devastation that that, that it occurred. And the nearest I can sort of visualise it is when you see images um, from the some of the cities in Syria after the the, the war that's there, um, you get a sense of sort of the devastation that can happen in, in a city. Over half the city was burnt down. The the city hall where I am currently, you know, was burnt down with the Carnegie Library next door that was completely destroyed, and it seemed to be just the uh, auxiliaries, the black and tans lost completely control of, the, uh, um, of themselves. They looked like they were gunning for a fight. They went on a sort of an orgy of, of looting and firebombing right throughout the city. They impeded the fire service when it was trying to put out the, um, uh, the fires and, and, and cut their hoses. Um, so it really was an evidence of the, the state losing control over its own forces. And they really acknowledged that. Uh, and they, they very much... Um, in 1920, lost any remaining moral authority to, to govern. And you see a, a massive swing um, against them um, in Cork during that time. Yes, and I suppose one postscript to Tomás McCurtain himself, his own son, Tomás Og McCurtain, who presumably was in the house 
that night that those people came and murdered his father. He got involved in the IRA. He was involved after De Valera split from the IRA and he was involved in the shooting of a Garda in Cork in 1940, sentenced to death and was reprieved by Eamon de Valera. He went on and later was involved in, in the IRA's border campaign of 58-62. And I suppose, look, it's very difficult to say these things, John, but uh, quite obviously he was somebody who was very much radicalised and that could well have happened when he was very much a, a, a child. Uh, absolutely. And if you think of the time period, um, he was a young boy of about four. And at his funeral, he walked behind the coffin from the North Cathedral out to St. Finbar's Cemetery um, all the way. And, you know, this obviously would have had a profound impact in his his upbringing and in his views. It would be impossible for it not to. Um, so, you know, he developed his own, his own views um, with regard to... Um, I suppose the battle for independence and the Republican uh, struggle. Um, and many people had their views formed out of this period. And I suppose in a way, 1920 is a relatively straightforward year to commemorate. I think as a nation, we face bigger challenges when we start to commemorate the, the, the Civil War. And, you know, these things have to be done very sensibly, as we've seen with the RIC um, commemorations. Yeah, just Briefly on the RIC thing, and it, 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 it's um, well behind us now, but you, you were one of the, for some reason, uh, mayors, various mayors around the country were invited, and uh, I don't think actually some of the elected national politicians were necessarily so, but whatever way it was conducted, you said at the time you, you, wouldn't, you felt you wouldn't be in a position to attend, and I think you mentioned uh, Tomás McCurtain at that time. I, I certainly did, um, I, and that was for a few reasons. One was... Um, it seemed to be commemorating the RAC as an institution rather than individuals. Um, you know, many people joined the RAC back in the day for various reasons. A lot of it probably financial. You had to fa- a family to feed, and you know those families and their descendants are, are you know are with us today. And you know, without disrespecting them, because I think that their narrative needs to be told. But the notion of commemorating the RAC as an institution in Dublin Castle. And going there as Lord Mayor of Cork City, wearing the same chain that Tomás McCurtain wore when he was Lord Mayor and he was mur- murdered by the REC, I just felt was inconjugable. And um, it just was not a, a, in the context of predictably of commemorations. Um, I didn't think it was appropriate for me to attend and I didn't think it was well thought out. I think there is a place for a, a seminar or some sort of service where we look at the narrative of why People joined the REC, what was their legacy, what were their families? And I think we owe a duty as a society to, to look at those stories um, because I think sometimes some of these, uh, our history sometimes can be done in the context of goodies and baddies in a very simplistic way. And we need to look at the complexity of our history um, and not to shy away from it. But I think the REC commemoration, as it was thought out, wasn't the right forum for that. Yes, and in t- in terms of Mosma Curtin again, you um you and, and and the council and the city had some events planned around this time on the actual 100th anniversary, and unfortunately, due to the current emergency, um, you're not you're not able to go ahead with that. 
No, it's 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 very um, it's very sad. I mean, in the overall context of things, it, 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 it's smaller and people's health is more important. But we had a number of events planned um, this this week, and we're really looking forward to it. And um, tonight, for instance, we were going to hold a special uh, on the 100 years anniversary night. We were holding a special mass in Blackpool, right across the road from where he was murdered, um, with full council. President Higgins was due to come down. We were doing a re- going to do a wreath-laying ceremony to mark that. Um, there was also um, going to be in University College Cork um, in the Olamaxa. There was going to be a recreation of the inquest into Tomás McCurtain's um, uh, murder. And the audience were wearing period costumes of the time and T.G. Cahill were going to film it. Again, a very, very um, interesting event. There were different readings. Uh, There was going to be a parade. There was going to be a concert, a pipe band concert, some of the replaying of his music. Now, hopefully some of those things will happen once things uh, settle down and once we get over um, our current sort of crisis. Uh, But there was a load of uh, ceremonies. And unfortunately, we've had to cancel nearly all of them. And um, we had one uh, small one last week in the Glen Boxing Club because one of the things that really struck me about Thomas McCurtain is, as well as his political um, sort of activity, he was very much involved in the music and culture, but was also president of Glen Boxing Club and founded Glen Boxing Club. So we had a, a lovely ceremony um, up there um, last week. And um, we will hold something very, very small tomorrow just to commemorate 100 years of his um, anniversary, uh, because I think it's important that um, we do mark it and we do um, um, recall it. We have a, we had a lovely ceremony in the beginning of January here on the election of the first Republican Council and, uh, and the election of Thomas McCurtain as Lord Mayor. And one of the things we wanted to celebrate at that time, as well as his election, because I think it's important we celebrate people's lives um, and their achievements rather than uh, their, their, their murder, is we had readings from, from, from the Irish examiner or the Cork examiner at the time and uh, that were read out. But we also read out all the names of all the councillors who were elected 100 years ago and we had family members in. And we invited, we wanted a connection between the old and the new. So we invited... Um, some of the new Irish to come in to read out the names of the people who were elected at that time. We had representatives from Women for Election. We had representatives of the trade union movement. Um, read out uh, all the different names because we had the first female councillor elected to Cork City Council at that time, Annie Sutton. Um, so it was a very, very moving event. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to have more events once things settle down and things get back to normal as well. Yes, and as you you mentioned yourself, in a lot of ways this is uh, possibly straightforward, but once we get to commemorating the likes of the Civil War, and you yourself, you're, you're a Fianna Fáil elected politician yourself, and of course your party's founding father was Eamon de Valera. It, it certainly will, and it'll certainly be a challenge. And for instance, we, we've had, we have an all-party and non-commemorations committee here on City Council, and we've worked hard at trying to commemorate things in a non-political party um, way. Um, It's probably easier for this period of commemorations than the period of commemorations uh, coming along. But one of the things we're really trying to say is um, nobody has a monopoly on history and no one one party owns history. Um, And I think it's very important that we say that. And the other thing that we're really, really working on, Mick, is that um, a lot of the period of history 100 years ago, some aspects have been, have been nearly completely airbrushed out. 
for instance, the role of women was really, really strong with Colin Amman and, you know, there was the franchise for women and it was quite a radical period. It was followed by a period of, of quite, you know, strong conservatism in, in, in Ireland. And that their role has really been very much forgotten. And it's coming more to the fore now. Um, but we're doing we're trying to do more to sort of recognize that. And, and, and that's, I think, very, very much as it should be. And rather than a party political way that we recognize people and their achievements uh, for what they did, because there were very, very some very, very radical um and individuals at the time. I, uh, two weeks ago, I had the honour of uh, unveiling a portrait, a lovely portrait on Muriel McSweeney, who was uh, Terence McSweeney's uh, widow. And she was very, very radical and very, you know, the, she, worthy of a film in her own right. She was the first freedom, free woman of New York City. Uh, she was a communist. She was an atheist. She went to Germany in the 30s to fight the Nazis. Um, her history, her, her life story is just um, amazing. And a lot of those stories got um, airbrushed out of history. Um, and I think we have an obligation and a duty to bring those stories more to life again. Yes, John. And one other um, thing that perhaps may be up for reassessment over the coming year would be the role of Eamon de Valera in the Civil War. Because as, you, as I'm sure you're aware, there would be a school of thought that he bore a major responsibility for it and that perhaps that was never ultimately acknowledged. I think that's a legitimate question, and I think it's a question that probably should needs to be asked. Um, um, his actions at the time, uh, you know, he showed huge bravery during the um, during the rising uh, in founding Fianna Fáil and his legacy in terms of you know the constitution and during the Second World War and things like that. His huge achievements. But perhaps his intransience um, in the face of changing circumstances and his inability to accept any compromise um, at the time of the treaty, you know, I think needs to be looked at and needs to be questioned. Although it, you know, it was from very, some very strongly held belief by him and many others, the nature of any negotiations, as we've seen with Brexit and with everything else, is that there's always going to be some compromise. There's always going to be uh, an element of give and take and you'll never get everything that you achieve from. Now, I'm conscious we're looking at this from the period of 100 years ago, and we're looking back with sort of uh, tainted spectacles. Um, but, you know, I think we have to be mature enough as a society to look at things and look at actions and look at what people do, rather having this unquestioning sort of adoration, even if they're the founders of my own party. You know, it's always good to look at things um, and reappraise them with the passage of time, because otherwise you don't learn from it. And as we've changed as a society and as we've become more pluralistic and secular, but also more international, we need to look and learn from history and how we can sort of take some of those lessons uh, and going forward, use them to you know improve our society as it is today. Finally, John, also just to note that a certain closing of the circle, perhaps in that regard, we're, we're nearly 100 years on from that civil war. And as we speak, I think, or certainly tomorrow, uh, we're going to see progression in what would appear to be negotiations for a government, including the two old civil war parties. What are your thoughts on that prospect? Um, my own thoughts is that if you're involved in politics, you're involved to try to improve society. And sometimes you have to be radical and take bold steps. 
whether that those steps involves going full circle, as you say, and that's well above my pay grade, um, or it involves reaching out and forming new alliances. Um, staying and doing nothing uh, in this day and age, if you do that, you risk becoming irrelevant. So you do have to change, you do have to adjust, and you do have to react to change circumstances. And whatever the outcome of that is, I think, I think Irish society is heading towards a more of a European model of government. I think overall that's good for society because it makes us have to take on other people's views. But it does pose challenges in terms of um, parties and their history. And one of the things that strikes me is politicians, by their nature, tend to look very much forward, look at the next election or the next doyle or what's going to happen. Party members tend to hold on to history probably with a stronger attachment. And that's a challenge in terms of bringing a party membership with you. John Sheen, Lord Mayor of Cork, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Mick. Thanks very much. That's it for today, folks. I'd like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon, and thank you for listening. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual platforms. You can let me know what you think at mick.clifford at examiner.ie or on Twitter at at mickcliff. See you again soon. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.